0: An extramarital affair, a backstabbing friend, a relentless prosecutor, and the impeachment of a once beloved president. In November of 1995, so began one of the biggest sex scandals of all time. Hello, and welcome to The Z Files. My name is Nina, and I'm here to talk about history. Not all history, just the history I want. And today, I wanna to talk about the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Okay, before I get into it, I want to give a quick trigger warning, as there will be discussion of suicide in today's episode. So please, if that kind of subject matter will be difficult for you to hear, do not listen to this episode, just listen to last week's, again. Now, I had some trouble deciding where to begin on this case, because depending on who you ask, it starts in different places. But I've done some thinking, and I've decided to start my telling of it many years before Bill Clinton was even considering running for president. In 1978, when him, along with his wife, Hillary Rodham Clinton, and two business partners, James and Susan McDougal, borrowed some money and purchased 220 acres of land in the Arkansas' Ozark Mountain for a real estate venture they called Whitewater Development Corp, intending to build vacation homes. Now, if you know anything about the Clintons, you know that in a decade or so, this is going to blow up in their face. Okay, so although clearly I am going to discuss this whole whitewater debacle because it's relevant, I do want to mention that it is now proven to have been completely false and was essentially just a right-wing conspiracy against the Clintons, so keep that in mind while I explain it. But, like I said, the initial land purchase and loan from the bank happened in 1978 when Bill Clinton was still just the Attorney General of Arkansas. And it's around this time when they started building some vacation home prototypes, with more money lent to Hillary Clinton by James McDougall. A couple years later, in 1982, McDougal bought a small savings loan and named it Madison Guarantee. And by 1985, he was forced to hold a fundraiser because Madison Guarantee was $50,000 in debt. But his fundraiser actually wound up under investigation, and it soon determined that some of the money donated was improperly drawn from depositor funds. And so, McDougall hires Rose Law Firm, the firm where Hillary Clinton is a partner, to do their legal work, which is definitely a conflict of interest. Soon after, McDougall borrowed $300,000 from a company owned by this guy, David Hale. Hale's company had recently been given federal funds from the Small Business Administration to lend to disadvantaged business owners such as our very own James McDougall. Although, an investigation into Hale's business done ten years later proves that David Hale actually lent up to three million of that money to political figures instead. But back to James McDougall and Madison Guarantee. In a shocking turn of events, federal regulators removed James McDougall as Madison Guarantee's president, citing improper practices. Although, he retains ownership of the business. So, if you're not understanding why I'm including this, let me quickly explain. As is becoming clearer and clearer, the Whitewater Venture is not going anywhere, and quite frankly, a little sus. James McDougall was involved in some really shady shit that started to resurface later during the Clinton presidency. And since the Clintons' name was tied directly to the McDougals and the whole Whitewater business, there ends up being a whole investigation around how much the Clintons knew about the McDougals' shady stuff. And spoiler alert, the investigation turned up nothing, and the Clintons were fully exonerated. But it did significantly shift public perception of them and is what initially led independent prosecutor Kenneth Starr to being involved with them. And eventually, it led him to investigate something slash someone else. Monica Lewinsky. So, back to 1988, when a witness from the Rose Law Firm, which, if you remember me saying earlier, is Hillary Clinton's firm, claims that Hillary Clinton requested the destruction of Madison Guaranteed land contract files. A year later, Madison Guarantee collapses, after a series of bad loans and a change in government accounting procedures. And, James McDougall is indicted on federal fraud charges related to his management of a real estate subsidiary of the Madison Guarantee Company. But despite that, in 1990 he's acquitted. Cut to 1992, the year where Bill Clinton runs for president, for the first time, against the Republican candidate George H.W. Bush. And a report, commissioned by the Clinton presidential campaign, claims that the Clintons lost $68,000 on the Whitewater venture, an estimate which is later adjusted to a number closer to 40000 Later that year, Bill Clinton wins the presidency, yada yada, I assume you know that. And he appointed his friend, Vince Foster, as Deputy White House Counsel. And in June of 1993, Foster files three years of Whitewater corporate tax returns. Why is this relevant, you ask? Just wait. A month later, in July of 1993, Vince Foster is found dead in a Washington-area park. Local authorities ruled the death as a suicide, but as always, conspiracy theorists have their own idea. And so begins speculation around the circumstances of Foster's death. Now, looking back on Foster's death, 25-plus years later, we can be confident that it was, in fact, a suicide, and all the theories and speculation around it were just that. But I do think it's important to address how incredibly disrespectful all the speculation was, especially to his family, of which he had a wife and three kids, who, in addition to having to deal with the very public death of their husband and father, also had to deal with a very public and unwarranted investigation around the matter. Furthermore, so much of that speculation was around the Clintons themselves being involved, which is also quite disrespectful to the Clintons because they were longtime friends with the Fosters and should not have had to grieve while being called his murderers. So with that in mind, I'll continue. In July of 1993, everyone began connecting Vince Foster's death to Whitewater Saying things like, he knew too much, so the Clintons killed him, or he knew too much and because of that he felt like he needed to kill himself, in reference to knowing too much about the Clintons' involvement in Whitewater. See what I mean when I say disrespectful? People started making claims like this for a couple reasons. And although I don't condone any of them, and am of the opinion that all of these speculations are disrespectful and the investigation should have been left to the investigators, not tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists and drama-hungry tabloids, I can see why people began to do so. For example, federal investigators were prohibited from entering Vince Foster's office immediately after the discovery of his body, but White House aides, on the other hand, were allowed to enter soon after, which does not look good. So, of course, this sparks speculation, specifically around there being files removed from his office or something like that. Soon after, the Clintons are tipped off about the FBI investigation into the matter. And by December, the White House agrees to turn over any and all Whitewater documents, which otherwise would have eventually been subpoenaed. And these documents overlap with files found in Vince Foster's office. At this time, speculation around the Clintons being involved in Foster's death is growing, largely due to proof that he would have had intimate knowledge of the Whitewater ordeal. In early 1994, a Republican attorney starts to investigate Madison Guarantee specifically, and in March of that year, another White House employee resigns, quite abruptly, after allegations are raised about the work he did with the Rose law firm, and the same employee is later convicted of fraud and ends up serving 18 months in jail. That summer, the House and Senate Banking Committee conducted a hearing on Whitewater, subpoenaing 29 members of the Clinton administration to testify at a congressional hearing. And surprisingly, all were cleared of any wrongdoing. But that August, the original independent counsel on the case, Robert Feisk Jr., is replaced by a much more conservative option, Kenneth Starr. But in January of 1998, the Senate Banking Committee releases a report finding no laws were broken in the Whitewater matter. Although, this only applied to the Clinton administration, and Senate hearings continued for the next couple years. Okay, so believe it or not, that serves as a pretty quick sum up of the whole Whitewater ordeal. But if you're super confused and didn't comprehend a thing I just said, essentially all you need to know is that the Clintons got into business with some shady people and the investigation was to find out if they knew the shady people were doing shady things. Anyway, I chose to start with that because I want you to take away that the Clintons already had the dogs after them, and one of those dogs happens to be Kenneth Starr, who like I've already dramatically teased becomes a key player in the Lewinsky case. So now that we've reached 1995, it's time to meet the MVP of this whole case, Miss Monica Lewinsky. In July of 1995, Monica Lewinsky has just graduated from Lewis and Clark College. She's 21 years old and joins White House staff as an unpaid intern. And in November, she's transferred to the West Wing. At this time, a lot of government workers were being laid off. But as an intern who wasn't on payroll, she was allowed to keep her job. Mostly, all she did was answer phones and run errands. But by the end of November, she was offered and accepted a paid job in the Office of Legislative Affairs. In the docu-series on Netflix, appropriately named Hillary, as it's about Hillary Clinton, members of the Clinton administration and Bill Clinton himself described the first encounter he had with Lewinsky. At this point, she was still an intern, and they say that usually interns and presidents don't rub shoulders too often. But Bill Clinton had come down to celebrate Lewinsky's boss's birthday and met Monica while eating cake and singing happy birthday. But their famed affair didn't start that day. It started on November 15th, around the same time when she was transferred to the West Wing. But once the affair starts, it seems they can't stop, because it continues sporadically for the next 18 months, having almost a dozen encounters over the time period. Even when, in April of 1996, Lewinsky is transferred to a job at the Pentagon, literally to get her away from him, I'm not kidding, people had noticed her two frequent trips to the Oval Office. you know what, it was Bill Clinton, so I'm sure they were used to it. But meanwhile, Clinton has also just been sued by Paula Jones for sexual misconduct. Shocker. Like, this guy couldn't stay out of legal battles to save his life. But similar to Kenneth Starr, I'll get back to Paula Jones later. I just want you to know that this is also going on. Okay, so let's jump a little bit forward in time to 1997. But I'll fill you in on what went down in between where we left off, and now. So Lewinsky has just been transferred to the Pentagon, and a month later, in May of 1996, the McDougals are convicted of fraud, and a month later, the Whitewater Senate hearings end, inconclusively. So clearly, 1996 was a pretty uneventful year. But in early 1997, Kenneth Starr, who's still the independent prosecutor on the Whitewater case, steps down from investigating the scandal and then changes his mind right away. That's weird, Kenneth. In May of 1997, Bill Clinton reportedly told Lewinsky the affair was over. How noble, almost two years after it began. But they remained in contact over the phone. Also in May, Clinton had tried to get immunity from the Paula Jones lawsuit by claiming that presidents should have immunity to civil cases. Luckily, the Supreme Court rejected his claims, which allowed Paula Jones to proceed with the harassment case against him. Now, this is a difficult story to tell because there's a lot of things happening at the same time that we need to keep track of, but just trust me, it's all relevant and it will all come together eventually. So while all the Paula Jones things and Kenneth Starr things are happening, Monica Lewinsky is starting to confide in someone for the first time. Her co-worker and so-called friend, Linda Tripp. When Lewinsky was transferred to the Pentagon, she began working with another woman, Linda Tripp and slowly began to open up about her affair with Clinton, eventually sharing pretty intimate and personal details with her. Now, Linda Tripp is a bit of a gossip. For example, in August of 1997, she's quoted in Newsweek magazine as having seen Kathleen Wiley, a White House staffer, emerge from the Oval Office looking disheveled but happy, with her lipstick smeared. Like, okay, Linda, stay in your lane. But anyway, in September of 1997, she does probably one of the shittiest things you could do to your friends and begins to tape all her conversations with Lewinsky. Like the ones where Lewinsky shares personal details about the affair, the two often talk on the phone, and Linda Tripp records it all. Cut to December 17th of 1997, and this is where the Paula Jones lawsuit becomes relevant, because word of the Clinton-Lewinsky affair reaches Paula Jones' attorney, who then subpoenaed Monica Lewinsky, thinking that she would testify against Clinton, and they would be able to prove a pattern of behavior, which would support their claims because it was a sexual harassment case. A little over a week later, Lewinsky quit her job at the Pentagon, ending her stint at the White House. Then, on January 5th of 1998, Clinton and Lewinsky have their last known telephone conversation. And two days later, in a sworn affidavit, Lewinsky denies having an affair with Clinton, in an attempt to avoid having to testify in the Paula Jones case. It's often speculated that on Lewinsky's call with Clinton the day before, he might have encouraged or gently pushed her to deny the affair. Okay, so now you're about to see all the little things come together. Monica Lewinsky gets wrapped up in the Paula Jones case, and on January 12th, Linda Tripp reaches out personally to Kenneth Starr and offers him 20 hours of taped conversations between herself and Lewinsky. And the very next day, Tripp is outfitted with a microphone by FBI agents so that she can continue to record her phone conversations with Monica Lewinsky. At the same time, Kenneth Starr requests an expansion of the Whitewater Inquiry to include the Clinton-Lewinsky affair, which is approved by Janet Reno, the Attorney General. On January 16th, Lewinsky is taken by FBI agents and U.S. attorneys on the basis of Linda Tripp's recordings to a hotel room, where she was questioned and offered immunity in exchange for cooperation with prosecutors. On January 17th, the next day, President Clinton testified under oath to lawyers in the Paula Jones case. This will be the first, but not the last time, that he publicly denies having had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. A couple days later, Lewinsky's identity is released on the Drudge Report. They publish rumors about her and Clinton and claim that Newsweek has copies of the recorded Lewinsky trip conversations. But quickly, this is all pulled from publication, because Starr worried it would jeopardize his investigation. Over the course of the next few days, Clinton continues to publicly deny the affair, both vaguely to a Washington Post reporter, and then more confidently, on January 26th, to an invited media audience at the White House, where he now infamously stated, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Strangely, three days later, Clinton demonstrates his highest ever approval ratings. CNN finds 67%, which was up 5% from his previous best. And quite annoyingly, at this point, Monica Lewinsky is only believed by 13% of Americans. Over the next couple months, the case progresses, and Lewinsky begins to negotiate an immunity deal with Kenneth Starr, who, if you haven't already noticed, is kinda shitty, and isn't really treating her well. In March, Kathleen Wiley, the same girl Linda Tripp claimed to have seen, testified in the Paula Jones lawsuit. But then, on April 1st, the harassment case is dismissed by the judge before it goes to trial, In June, people start to hear news about the possibilities of a new immunity deal between Kenneth Starr and Monica Lewinsky. And it's around this time when Lewinsky replaces her original lawyers with two well-known Washington criminal defense lawyers, Jacob Stein and some guy named Plato, whose last name I'm not going to try and pronounce. But it's not announced that an immunity deal has been struck with Starr until July 28th. The deal states that for Lewinsky's full and truthful testimony, she will receive transactional immunity, meaning that nothing she says can be used against her, and protects herself and her parents, who had been threatened with prosecution by Kenneth Starr. Asshole. Around this same time, as part of the immunity deal, Lewinsky also offers physical evidence, in the form of a blue dress, one that she had never opted to wash because Linda Tripp had advised against doing so. This now infamous blue dress contains physical evidence. I'm not going to say in what form, but you're smart and you can figure it out. So naturally, on August 3rd, Clinton is asked for a blood sample so that they can run tests and confirm if the Lewinsky physical evidence is legit. Spoiler alert, it is. Throughout August, both Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton will testify before a grand jury. Lewinsky does so first, on August 6th and as laid out in the terms of her immunity agreement, she gives her full and honest truth. A little over 10 days later, Bill Clinton testified. Kenneth Starr stated on the day of his testimony that he thought he had a good case against Clinton. Clinton had a closed-door testimony. It lasted about five hours, in which he acknowledges that he did have a relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Well, he calls it improper intimate contact with sexual undertones but insists that his prior testimony, where he denied the relationship, was still honest. He claims that his testimony was entirely legal under the law, since his relationship with Lewinsky did not fit under the terms of sexual relationship laid out by the court. He even goes on to debate the meaning of sexual relationship during his testimony, and famously states, it depends upon what the meaning of the word is, is. That same night, he gives a quick, four-minute televised speech to the nation, admitting to having had a sexual relationship with Lewinsky. He also denies having told anybody to lie, saying, At no time did I ask anyone to lie, to hide or destroy evidence, or to take any other unlawful action. And in the same speech, he raises his doubts about Kenneth Starr, stating, In addition, I had real and serious concerns about an independent counsel investigation. He goes on to say that this is because Starr's investigation began as an investigation of his business dealings, and he thought it was weird that it switched. I don't really get the point he was trying to make. In his four-minute address, he never speaks the word sex or regret in reference to the affair, although he claims to regret misleading the nation and his family. Fun fact. This testimony actually made him the first sitting president to ever testify before a grand jury investigating his conduct. Okay, so it's time for a quick recap before we move into the actual impeachment proceedings against him. But don't worry, I'm almost done. Here we go. So Bill Clinton starts an affair with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky while he's under investigation for a real estate scandal by independent counsel Kenneth Starr and being sued for sexual harassment by Paula Jones. When Lewinsky is transferred to a job at the Pentagon, she confides in a friend, Linda Tripp, who begins to secretly record all their conversations. Lewinsky is then subpoenaed by Paula Jones lawyers, but instead of testifying, she signs an affidavit claiming she didn't have a relationship with Clinton. But she did. Bill Clinton then also denies the relationship. Then Lewinsky's friend goes to Kenneth Starr and offers him recorded tapes as proof of the affair. Starr gets in contact with Lewinsky and signs an immunity deal where Lewinsky will testify honestly and offer the blue dress with Clinton's DNA as evidence, in exchange for immunity for herself and her parents. She then testified, and shortly after, so does Clinton, where he admits to their relationship with Lewinsky. But you know, it all depends on what your definition of is, is. Okay, so let's pick back up again on September 9th of 1998, when Kenneth Starr submitted his now-infamous report and 18 boxes of documents supporting his report to the House of Representatives. Now what is in this report, you ask? It argues and presents reasons why Bill Clinton should be impeached. He presents 11 grounds of impeachment. Perjury, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, and abuse of power. It also goes into explicit detail of the sexual relationship between Clinton and Lewinsky. Likely all details taken from the Lewinsky trip tapes. Two days later, on September 11th, Congress made his report public. And 10 days later, Republicans voted to release the videotape of Clinton's grand jury testimony and its broadcast across the country. And about 10 days after that, more evidence from the Starr investigation is released, including the transcript of the taped conversations between Lewinsky and Tripp. On August 5th, The House Judiciary Committee voted to launch a congressional impeachment inquiry against President Clinton, and on October 8th, the House of Representatives voted for impeachment proceedings to begin against him, and the House Judiciary Committee is tasked with drawing up the charges, based on the 11 allegations laid out by Kenneth Starr. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee... Henry Hyde, announces that the impeachment inquiry will concentrate on two core charges, that Clinton lied under oath and attempted to obstruct justice. Meanwhile, Clinton was on a trip to Tokyo, where on a Japanese TV show, he gets harangued by a Japanese housewife for cheating. And I just like that. And a couple days later, National Treasurer Tom Hanks claims to regret giving financial support to President Clinton. Must have been a rough couple days for old Clinton. On December 11th, the House Judiciary Committee approved three articles of impeachment. These three articles accuse Clinton of lying to a grand jury, committing perjury by denying he had a relationship with Monica Lewinsky, and obstructing justice. A day later, the committee approves one more article of impeachment, accusing Clinton of abusing power in direct parallel to the language used by Nixon in the Watergate era. A Washington Post article written at the time about the Clinton impeachment states, Republicans crazy themselves about the quickly shifting personal code of conduct for politicians. And this isn't relevant, I just think it's a good quote. But speaking of Republicans, the general consensus from them at the time was that if Clinton really cared about the nation, he should just resign, as he really only had himself to blame. Moving on to the actual impeachment proceedings. Let me set the scene. It's December 19th, six days away from Christmas. The White House is lavishly decorated for the upcoming holiday, and Clinton gives a brief six-minute address on the South Lawn where he says, we must stop the politics of personal destruction. We must get rid of the poisonous venom of excessive partisanship, obsessive animosity and uncontrolled anger. That is not what America deserves. Bob Livingston was the Republican Speaker of the House. In his opening speech, he made a case for impeachment, saying, We're not ruled by kings or emperors, and there's no divine right of president. Staying true to his party, he also asked Clinton to resign. And as he did, the Democratic side of the chamber began to angrily shout things at him, like, No, and you resign. But in a shocking turn of events, he did just that, saying, I'm willing to heed my own words, and then confessed to his own affair and resigned himself, going on to say that he hoped Clinton would follow. Out of the four impeachment articles proposed by the committee, two are voted on and approved. The first claims that Clinton committed perjury when testifying before Starr's grand jury, since he denied that him and Lewinsky had had, had any sexual relationship. and it passed. 228 to 206, with five Republicans crossing party lines and voting no, but five Democrats doing the same thing and offsetting them. The second approved article states that he obstructed justice in the Jones case by encouraging Lewinsky to file a false affidavit, denying their affair. It passed 221 to 212, even though eight Republicans voted against it. Overall, both parties show generally strong solidarity, with limited crossing of party lines, Out of all four proposed articles, only four Republicans opposed all four, while only five Democrats voted for at least one. President Clinton was officially impeached on December 19th for perjury and obstruction of justice. Another quote from the same Washington Post article I quoted earlier stated on the matter, The House action ensured that Clinton will go down in history, not as the transformational leader he once hoped to be, but as a scandal-tarred president. As you can assume, he wasn't thrown out of office, and he didn't resign either. Instead, he pledged to stay in the White House and do his duty until, in his own words, the last hour or the last day of my term. For some reason, even with the impeachment, Clinton's approval rating was through the roof, at an all-time personal high of 73%, while Monica Lewinsky was depressed and suicidal as a result of the online bullying she experienced. In doing research for this episode, I used a variety of sources, all of which will be linked down below, in case you're interested in doing any more research yourself. If you want my recommendation, the Washington Post article I referenced a few times on the impeachment proceedings is quite good, both because the content is interesting, but also because it's just really well written. So I would definitely recommend it. Another good one is a Washington Post timeline of the whole Whitewater affair. It helps get a good grasp of the scandal, which I appreciated because it's super complicated and long. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed the horrible Bill Clinton impression I subjected you to, but I had so much fun making it, so I hope you had fun as well. This is the second episode in my three-part miniseries thing I'm doing about the three American presidents who were impeached. So I've now done Clinton and Nixon, and I'll be ending with Trump. Oh, wish me luck. And no, I'm not doing Andrew Johnson, he's irrelevant. Next week is Trump week. Oh god, I hate that.